Scripture reading this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 13 and then we'll read all the way through chapter 3, verse 10. Reading in the English Standard Version. (coughs) 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ, just as uh, uh, that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins but God's wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time in person not in heart we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. This is God's word. And this uh, line there at the end of the passage, supply what is lacking in your faith, it's another way of saying there were things about Jesus we wanted to teach you. There were things about gospel-centered living that we wanted to uh, uh, show you. And the visit was cut short. Lacking in your faith is not a deficiency in their case. He wanted to fill their cups. Keep that imagery in mind. I'll come back to it later on. I have a picture that I want to give you for it. This is a huge block of text, I realize, and on a holiday weekend, uh, no less, which is uh, subsequently known as uh, Cole gets to pressure wash the driveway uh, weekend. But a lot of this, the reason we took so much text in in one Sunday is because a lot of this is is personal detail between Paul and this church, sending Timothy back to check on them and the reports going to and fro. And if Timothy had found unfaithfulness, that's not what he found. He found faithfulness. He found ardent desire to 
to keep the ministry going. Uh, but if Timothy had found unfaithfulness, uh, that would have distressed Paul. And not because Paul was some kind of idealist who couldn't take anything other than a glowing report from old Thessalonica here. It was because Paul reverenced the people of God. That's an idea I want to try to uh, firm up for us this morning. Because I, I think as evangelical Christians, we think of reverence immediately as something that is due God, uh, something that we show to God's word. Uh, but here in this overlapping two chapters, we find reverence for the people of God too. That's how you um, categorize all the, uh, the, 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 the feeling and the uh, and all of the attention given to, to these folks, uh, there's a reverence for the people of God as well as the Word of God. And this is particularly instructive in our day because Christians nowadays are turning on one another with too much common, commonplace. Uh, this is a commonplace reality too much. Christians irreverencing the body of Christ. <clears throat> If you don't process uh, current events the way I do, maybe you're in Christ, but I want nothing to do with you. Or uh, if, if my politics aren't yours, maybe I, I think you, you aren't even in Christ. It's gotten that bad in some places. This kind of stuff is, is relationally counterproductive. It breeds distrust and discord, but it also defeats our witness. And actually, I would be less uh, than a servant of God, if I didn't say this, it invites God's judgment. To shake the church, to sift the church until we get Jesus in the center, his gospel and nothing else. When Paul agonized over his churches, and he did in most of his letters, just about all of them, he didn't agonize over the churches because Paul was a worrier. It's because he understood the damage persecution can do to faithfulness, as well as the damage that divisions can do. Some of them can be quite petty, some of them more significant than others, but divisions nevertheless. He understood the divisions of, of competing allegiances. These are areas in which the tempter will tempt. Look at that term there in uh, verse 5 of chapter 3. He says, I, I sent to learn about your faith. And then in verse 6, he says, it was Timothy he sent who came back with a good report. But he says in verse 5 of chapter 3, I sent him for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. In those areas I just mentioned, that's where the tempter does his tempting. Through persecution, the tempter will tempt us to self-protect, to, as it were, identify with Jesus only if it's safe and there's no cost. Through petty divisions in particular, the tempter will tempt us to make the superficial fundamental. And through competing allegiances, he'll tempt us to idolatries, to putting someone or something else in the center of our existence, some other test of orthodoxy, some other test of faithfulness or holiness, something less than love for Jesus. You know, you, you read this passage and you can almost audibly hear Paul's sigh of relief coming out of this text. He was pensive and, and anxious about 
how they were doing because they were in a very difficult location with their neighbors and the civic authorities being against them. He uses the word affliction here for the persecution they were going through. And yet there's this sigh of relief after hearing from Timothy, verse 6 here in chapter 3. He's brought us the good report, verse 6. Your faith, love, reported you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. What is he getting at? The tempter, mentioned in verse 5, the tempter is Satan, had not succeeded in getting these Christians to turn on one another. It's one of his oldest ploys. He'd not succeeded in getting these Christians to turn coat on Jesus because the opposition, again the word is affliction that he uses in chapter 3, because of the blunt force trauma they experienced from their neighbors and civic leaders. And I tell you, I kind of envy Paul a bit here, this sigh of relief, because our present here and now, you know, a sigh of relief is a good exhale. You're relieved. But when you experience uh, the church today, uh, particularly as a pastor, it often feels like the air is sucked out of the room for much, much less things. How easily those in Christ turn on each other. The divisions in the wider culture show up in the church now. So much so, it's no longer even surprising. And so what we see in this text before us is something we desperately need to cultivate Not just reverence for the Word of God, but also reverence for the people of God, both. Reverencing the Word of God enough to actually believe it, (laughs) we see that in this text, but we also see reverencing the people of God enough to actually belong to us through thick and thin. Where do we see it? Uh, Look back at chapter 2, verse 13, very first verse in the passage as we're taking it this morning. Chapter 2, verse 13, he says, We thank God constantly that when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Reverence for the word. And then he calls these believers, verse 20, look at chapter 2, verse 20, last verse in chapter 2, you are our glory and joy. What does that mean? Well, we'll talk about that. That's reverence for the people of God. So we get reverence for the word of God and we get reverence for the people of God, a desire to fill their cups, by which I mean teach and demonstrate gospel-centered living, keeping Jesus in the center of all considerations. How does what we're involved in glorify him? How does our debating over this give him more honor and praise, etc., and so on? I think this is the best way to take this passage. Again, we're taking a big chunk of text. A lot of it is personal interaction. But what we want to gain from this this morning is two things. We want to see, and we underscore it here in chapter 2, verse 13, reverence for the Word of God. It's a good opportunity to talk about that. And then we also want to talk about reverence for the people of God. And most of us, I think, nod along with reverence for the Word of God. Yes, of course, we're evangelical Christians. We should take uh, the Word of God in reverence. Um, It's reverencing the people of God that we wonder about. Am I going too far in suggesting that this is a reality also for the church? I don't think so. But first, let's talk about reverence for the Word of God. Look again at chapter 2, verse 13. And we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, 
<clears throat> but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, this is our lane as evangelical Christians, a hallmark of evangelical Christianity. What does it say out on our marquee? First evangelical church. That means we're a certain kind of Christian. We're evangelical Christians. And uh, a hallmark of evangelical Christianity is prizing the Bible, taking the Bible at face value as God's personal revelation to us. This is a mainstay of our identity. We consider the Bible to be the highest authority. That's what you find true of evangelical churches or what you're supposed to find true of self-describing evangelical Christians is that there is a biblicism to use the fancy word, there's a, a Bible-centeredness to us. We're serious about the Bible. In fact, we're so serious about it, we can sometimes be super scrupulous, and that can undermine our seriousness. I'm, th I'm thinking of a time I heard a preacher object, took time in the pulpit to object to pencils with Bible verses printed on them. Because as you sharpen the pencil, he said, you grind down the Word of God. And how can any Bible-believing Christian want to do that to the Word of God? Well, I, I get the sentiment. He's trying to make a point about how we value Scripture or don't. But his point actually feels in practice more Muslim than Christian. The Muslim is the one who venerates his book, holds it a certain way, kisses it. The, the Christian, uh, we, we reverence our book for what it gives us which is the Word of God incarnated in Jesus, whom we hear from by His Spirit wherever we open up to this. Look, if I went out in the parking lot to find Bibles and cars, do you think I would succeed? Right. And do you think I'd probably find Bibles, you know, sandwiched up under things, half the pages all folded in, or I'd find Bibles on the back uh, back window, you know, where the sun beats down on the Bible and cracks the cover and yellows the pages. And what if I came back in here with a cartload of those Bibles and I began to, you know, get on to you. I began to shame you for you're not referencing, you know, reverencing the Word of God sufficiently. You know that, why that would be ridiculous? Because it's anti-evangelical. We reverence the Word of God for what the Word of God gives us. God. So a Bible that's beat up, a Bible that's falling apart at the seams, that needs to be recovered with coffee stains on its pages and Taco Bell quesadilla stains on its pages, uh, that's a beautiful thing in that it belongs to somebody who's been putting it to use. That's a precious thing. Receiving the Word of God, reverencing it as such, it's, it's not about how you hold a Bible or how you keep a Bible, but whether we can see in one another that we've been shaped by the Word of God, the way and the truth and the life of Jesus. I'm giving you classic evangelical bibliology here. Central in defining who we are is not having copies of the Word of God, but the Word getting into us, the copy of it getting into us. Now, out there in the world that we know, we know there are people who believe if that happens, if the Word of God gets into you, they believe bad things happen. We live in a time in which Bible devotion is seen to be culturally regressive. It holds people back. It's sexist, it's racist, it's um, if not anti-intellectual, it's uh, even morally wrong in the ways uh, that people today uh, think of morality. 
And as if on cue, look at verses 14 through 16 here in chapter 2. This tests our sense of Scripture because a lot of modern readers look at verses 14 through 16 and say, well, isn't Paul being kind of anti-Semitic here? Look what he says, verse 14. You became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, the original churches. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, drove us out, displeased God, opposed all humankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, God's wrath has come upon them at last. He means Jewish people. And we go, what is this about? What's going on? Paul is making a judgment. He's making a judgment in context on people who got the word of God first. The Jewish nation formed to be a kingdom of priests. They got the patriarchs. They got the promises. They got the prophets. They got the Messiah himself. And instead of reverencing him, there was rejection. The Gentiles were totally complicit in this. But he's focusing on his own people. And instead of reverence for people who got the word of God first, there's rejection of Jesus. Unbelief characterizes them. And it's one thing if unbelief takes the form of, you know, I don't care to believe what you believe. We can still be friends. If you have a posture of unbelief that is, you know what, I just don't want to believe what you believe, we can still be friends through that. It's entirely another thing if unbelief goes... I don't care for what you believe, and I'll do everything I can to ensure that no one else believes it from you. And that's what Paul's upset about here. It wasn't daily, passive, uh, apathy or indifference toward God. It was aggressive unbelief meant to silence and menace and otherwise sabotage gospel proclamation, which is the Word of God in Christ. Not all Jews were doing that, no. Some believed in Christ, many in Jerusalem. Some in this church in Thessalonica contained uh, Jewish believers. Many were passive in unbelief then and now. But others opposed Jesus and his people aggressively. And Paul judges that here at the end of chapter 2 for the damage it did to the believers themselves, but also to unbelievers interfering with the gospel getting to them and so he says in verse 16 God's wrath has come upon them at last he speaks in sort of the prophetic present this is a sure thing God judges all opposition to him his wrath is his hatred of that which hurts what he loves and so God loves his son God loves his son's people God judged Israel many times in their history and was again doing so in that generation for their unique opposition. What made it unique is that they were the last people on earth who should have opposed Jesus. Opposition to Jesus, whether it comes from Jew, Gentile, any ethnicity, all of it, all of us have participated in it and it's condemned. And throughout the New Testament, just to put a fine point on this, whenever you see Paul addressing his ethnic people, there's at times great frustration for the unbelief. There's other times great compassion toward them in their other unbelief. You get both. But unbelief stands under God's condemnation. According to this former Pharisee who himself once persecuted the church, he knows that mercy is available. He also knows that judgment is inevitable. 
And look, Paul is saying nothing here that Jesus had not already said in his ministry in the Gospels. Look at how Jesus spoke to his people, the people of his time, how he confronted them, how he challenged them. It's not anti-Semitic, it's a reckoning. Reverencing the word of God, enough to believe it, enough to worship the object of the word, Jesus himself. So that's our first takeaway, reverencing the word of God. Second takeaway of two, reverencing the people of God. Look again at verses 17 through 20, concluding chapter 2, verse 17. We were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time. In person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. I wanted to come to you, Paul. Satan hindered us. And then he says, verse 19, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Verse 20, you are our glory and joy. And then chapter 3 continues with the esteem of them. He says it's because of mutual faithfulness. It's because of mutual love. It's because of mutual resilience in and through troubles. Look at verse 6 in chapter 3. Timothy's come to us from you, brought us a good news of your faith and love. You want to see us. We want to see you. We're encouraged. Verse 7, verse 8, we know you're standing in the Lord, and that's wind in ourselves. What's this about? Reverencing the people of God. Reverencing the people of God enough to actually belong to us. Now, between the two takeaways that we have today, reverencing the word of God, reverencing the people of God, I guarantee you we find it easier to reverence the word of God, don't we? Or at least to think that we are. Because we can keep that cerebral. We can uh, go to 100 Bible studies and think ourselves serious Christians, faithful Christians, because we do. But the longer I serve God's people in all our variety, the more I see faithfulness to Christ will reverence the people of God also. But I also see that this will break your heart at times. The people of God will break your heart. It's not a complaint, it's just reality. And what breaks our hearts most is how easily, particularly in this day and time, how easily we turn on one another, though we are commissioned to belong together and to belong to one another. And why do we turn on one another? We succumb to the tempter's temptations. To look to politics for righteousness. To look to politics for meaning. To look there for belonging instead of it just being about governance. Or we do theology nowadays in such ways that you become a heresy hunter. You become a fault finder. You listen to sermons so you can pick them apart. So you can critique you develop an unhealthy interest in making correction. You're not easily edified. You want the fight. I remember that line from uh, Captain Smith was the, uh, uh, the character in the World War I movie 1917. When he tells uh, Schofield, make sure you give this message to the major about stopping uh, from going into battle because some men just want the fight. And I thought, man, have I known people like that, fighting types in the church too. And self-justification is rampant among the fighting types. But you know, very little of the fights they pick is about the heart and soul of essential Christianity. 
It's more about power. It's more about control. It's more about justifying my anxiety over something or justifying my anger about something. A pastor in Atlanta, not a famous one, a pastor there wrote, nothing has expanded my heart more and nothing has broken it more than the church. We're talking about reverencing the people of God, why this might be a little difficult for us. Nothing has expanded my heart more. I understand this. Nothing has expanded my heart more than the people of God, the church, uh, the encouragement the church gives, the prayers that people give, uh, the standing together in difficult things, the, just the, the, your spirit with someone uh, else, uh, your, your spirit aligning. Uh, so much of that experience, nothing has expanded my heart more than the church, but nothing has broken it more. And you know, you can't get your heart broken unless you care about something. Those whose hearts are never broken, they don't, they don't care about anything. What do you do with heartbreak? What do you do with church heartbreak? What do you do when the church is disappointing you? Do you quit? Go your own way? Go on that eternal search for the perfect church. It's got to be out there somewhere. The church that will never frustrate me. The church that will do everything just the way I think it ought to be done. Or maybe you say, the heck with the church. It's just me and Jesus now. Morning coffee, just me and Jesus. I've seen people go either direction and other lanes besides those. What do you do? Grizzlies fans will know the name Greg Popovich, or Pop, as he's called, longtime coach of the San Antonio Spurs. Back in 2013, the Spurs uh, were in the NBA Finals. Their opponent was the Miami Heat. If you're not familiar with an NBA Finals, it's a best of seven series. Uh, the two teams uh, play until someone wins four. And um, they were locked in an epic struggle. It's one of the best finals uh, ever. Uh, 2013, by, by game five, uh, the Spurs had a 3-2 to two lead in the series. And in game six, which they were on the road for in Miami, uh, they controlled the game. They had a 10-point lead when the fourth quarter began. And with 28 seconds to go, the San Antonio Spurs held a five-point lead over the Miami Heat. All they had to do was keep the lead, and they would go back home NBA champions. 28 seconds but the heat tied the game scored five points in those 28 seconds overtime the heat won it was a devastating loss for the spurs because they were that close to winning it all and then they lost the game the way they did and these are professionals and so they don't take that lightly and then they went into game seven and the momentum had shifted and and it was all Miami's, and indeed Miami won the series. The San Antonio Spurs were gutted by this loss in game six in Miami. They were shocked. How did we let a game we controlled the entire way get away from us with only seconds left? And so they were very down on themselves post-game. Well, reservations had been made at a very nice Miami restaurant for the team to have its victory celebration. They'd gone into Miami with all the confidence. Uh, a lot of predictions were they were going to win and they were going to go out to this restaurant and celebrate as a team afterwards, but they lost. And so everyone expected Pop, the coach, to cancel those reservations, let the team go lick their wounds, 
come back the next day. That didn't happen. Pop walked in the locker room. He insisted they go. They were going to keep their plans, and everybody was expected to show. Pop goes to the restaurant immediately before the team arrives. He orders appetizers. He uncorks bottles of wine. He orders each player individually a meal, which says he knew his players very well. And Daniel Coyle, in his book, The Culture Code, describes what follows. Popovich stood and greeted every player as they came through the door. Some got a hug, some got a smile, some got a joke or a light touch on the arm. The wine flowed. They sat and ate together as a team. Popovich moved around the room, connecting with each player in turn. People later said he behaved like the father of a bride at a wedding in a moment that could have been filled with frustration, recrimination, and anger. He filled their cups. Spurs general manager R.C. Buford said, by the end of the night, things felt almost normal. We were a team again. It's the single greatest thing I've ever seen in sports, bar none. The coach walking around, keeping his players' cups filled so the conversation could keep going. We read in the end of chapter 2 these words Paul saying to this church, you're our glory and joy. And you think, what does that mean? You're my glory and joy? I want to offer you that picture of a defeated team seated around a table, not just being served by their coach, being loved by their coach, as what that means. That's the best picture I know of to give you for what it means to call a group of people your glory and your joy. Those are reverencing terms. It's about filling cups, not quitting on the people of God, who in some ways will always feel like we're losing in this world. To reverence the people of God means you belong to them, you belong to us, win or lose. Needs met or needs going unmet. Belonging also when we're not accomplishing, when we're not succeeding. It's easy to belong when we're doing well and we're proud of one another and there's accomplishments to bask in. But maybe even when we're personally embarrassing one another, continuing to fill the cups. Not quitting. Keep filling the cups of the people of God. If the people of God are your glory and your joy, it can take a long time to learn. But you know, it's patterned after God himself. Jesus himself, he doesn't give up on us. And the scriptures say he's not ashamed to call us his brethren, his brothers, his sisters. I'm very fond of telling you often that he's not a reluctant savior. It's one of the best things I know to say to you. It's true. He loves us with an infinite love. If, if God has to shake or sift his people in order for us to get Christ-centeredness back, it is to our glory and joy that he does so. Because lesser loves can never fill your cup the way you need and the way that I need. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. We'll sing as well. I want to thank you, Lord, for filling our cups and putting servants in our lives who do that for us. Each one of us in the room need and hopefully have someone who fills their cup. Provides the encouragement that comes from reverencing your people. Lord, make us all that way.
that we reverence your people, we reverence your word, not in a cerebral pursuit. We reverence it in order to follow it. Because as we follow and do the word, we're keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. And Lord, make it where we desire that. And if we don't desire that, we, we do what's needed so that we will. Lord, train our desires to not just fit your designs, but to move in the directions you have for us. Thank you for what is shown to us in this passage, how central Christ was as the bond between these apostles and the people, and how these apostles reverenced your people. Lord, that we would all do that, how they were reverencing one another in the way they treated one another, mutual faithfulness, encouragement, mutual love. Lord, help us in this. We understand our weaknesses. We know our frailties. We know where we resist and where we're reluctant. Please take all those other things that we fill up in the center of our life and put Christ there so that what exudes from us is his way, his truth, his life until he comes. We pray in his name. Amen.